This is an ABC podcast. In the early 1840s, Britain sent an expeditionary force of a mere 10,000 troops to invade China and enforcing the Qing government, which had an 800,000 strong army to pay reparations and cede the island of Hong Kong to it. After the Opium War, China was repeatedly defeated by countries which were far smaller in size and population. That page of Chinese history one of humiliation and sorrow. Xi Jinping speaking in Hong Kong in 2017 about the humiliation that followed the British defeat of the Chinese in the two Opium Wars between 1839 and 1860. While most of us in the West have the barest knowledge, if any at all, of the Opium Wars, it's a very different story in China especially for the current Chinese leadership. For them, the Opium Wars was a pivotal moment in Chinese history, when China lost its position as the most powerful empire in Asia, it lost its economic wealth and was all but carved up by foreign powers. It's the legacy of these two wars that is a driving force behind China's current foreign policies and their desire to reunite all former Chinese territories, including Taiwan. So to understand modern China, as we're trying to do this week here on RN, you must start with the Opium Wars. Hello, this is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince. At the time of the Opium Wars, China was ruled by the Qing Dynasty, which had been in power since 1644, and according to Jun Yongwen, Professor of Chinese History at the University of Manchester, it was the richest empire on the planet. I think most historians would agree that until the end of the 18th century, Qing China was rather powerful because it had a large population. It had sucked in a lot of silver from international trade, hence it's very wealthy. And the three emperors, the Kangxi, Yongzheng and Qianlong emperors, had expanded China's territory. So territorially, China was very big. So up until say, 1780s, 1790s, China was probably the richest country in the world. The first British envoy to China visits in 1793, and he is a man who's used to impressive governments, Lord McCartney. He's been at uh, the heart of the Russian Empire. He's seen Europe. Professor of History at the University of Bristol, Robert Bickers. Nothing has prepared him for what he sees in China. Immense size, immense capacity of the state. The palaces are immense. It's a gorgeous place to visit. He thinks it's all on the verge of crumbling, but he would. He would like to see that. But he is suitably impressed by what he sees. 
The Chinese had always traded with other parts of Asia and were more than happy to trade with the British within limits. The problem was that the British wanted lots of Chinese goods, tea, ceramics and silk, but the Chinese didn't want British goods. The wealth that the Qing generated came from trade, mainly porcelain, silk, tea and other spices. But the problem is that they demanded gold or silver as payment. Silver was the currency for bulky transaction. You know, for little petty transactions, you go to the market, you use copper cash. But for overseas trade and paying taxes, you use silver. And the Spanish and Portuguese had to carry shiploads of silver to China and British as well in order to trade with China because China had what they wanted. And the Chinese were not very interested in what they had to offer, you know, some furs and some textiles, and those are not the things that the Chinese really wanted. So that caused a huge trade imbalance and trade deficit. The the great empire of the Qing is fairly self-sufficient. It's always had overseas trade, Chinese traders, sail down into Southeast Asia and exchange goods with what we now call Japan and Korea. But there's nothing really that the British can deliver in bulk for the tea that's needed. Tea becomes not only the the daily drug of choice for the English, uh, it's an immense source of revenue for the British treasury. So there is this growing imbalance in trade between the Qing Empire and the British until in the later 18th century, they discover that the the Qing Empire will take opium. But, But in a sense, it wasn't the British who first bought opium to China. When did it first arrive and how was it introduced and just how quickly did did people's interest in opium start to grow? It has a lot to do with the overseas Chinese from Indonesia and Malaysia. They learned to smoke opium mixed with tobacco and other substances in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and they returned to China with the habit and the commodity itself, and that's how it got spread in the coastal areas. The other is wealthy people. They began to use opium as well in the 18th century, and it was a luxury. Not everybody could afford it, not everybody knew about it. What the British did is they fueled the consumption by supplying more, by making it possible for the middle classes to join in. So that's their role. So if you look at that increase, because, I mean, as I understand it, the the really big increase in the beginning anyway became between, say, 1790 through to 1839. Just if you look at that sort of period of, say, you know, 40 years or 50 years, how quickly did the demand for opium grow in China in that period? That is a period what I called taste-making and trend-setting. It's when the elites, mostly urban elites, and the sons and daughters of the Manchu court, because they were not allowed to do anything, you know, they didn't have to work. 
they get a steady income from the government and that gave them time to test new things like opium. So you could say that opium smoking in the 1780s, 1790s probably was like a spark. By the 1830s, it was a fire. It was a wildfire. British traders in opium are perfectly respectable gentlemen in terms of their time and position in British society. Men like Jardine or Matheson or Hugh Hamilton, Lindsay. These are men who have often worked for the East India Company, who've then left the company, set up on their own account. Jardine and Matheson were both, in fact, surgeons for the East India Company on its ships. They trade on their own account. Their individual trades become companies. Jardine Matheson becomes an immensely powerful company in time. They're men who are able to collaborate with the East India Company, with Indian traders in Bombay, mobilise capital, purchase large amounts of opium, ship it quickly to China, there sell it. And then the money that they gain from the sales is the money that the East India Company uses to purchase tea. From the early 1820s onwards, the balance of trade shifts from being in China's favour to being in favour of the British. Silver is pouring out of China. That's when the state gets very alarmed about what is happening. It is also alarmed about the, the breakdown of the social and administrative order of southern China, especially. And especially as people like Jardine and Matheson innovate, they create a, a fleet of new fast clippers, which are able to ship the drug out very quickly from India and ship it along the Chinese coast. The British try their best, their utmost, to try to persuade the Chinese to legalize opium. You know, British are very honorable people. I respect them. And they realize that to trade in an illegal drug is not honorable. So they put pressure on the Chinese to legalize it. But then you see the British emphasis was on income. Chinese emphasis was on morality. The emperor rules with moral power. And if the emperor should legalize opium, <laughs> the mandate of heaven will be taken back by heaven. John Wong, Emeritus Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney. Britain had a very dominant philosophy at the time, which was free trade. If there's free trade in the world, free flow of goods, there will be world peace. When you look at it, it makes a great deal of sense for Britain to pursue free trade because it was the first to industrialize. Its commodities had most, most competitive price. So it's wonderful to have free trade of the goods flowing into every corner of the world. But opium was a monopoly. Production in India was a monopoly. What the response of the Qing dynasty was to Britain bringing in more opium? Their response was very complex. On the one hand, they were concerned about addiction because by that time, by 1830s, early 1830s, 1831, 32, it was very obvious that a lot of elite, including their fellow colleagues, ranking officials and princes and dukes and all that, and that's why they mounted waves of prohibition campaigns. So that's 
one side. They did worry about the moral and social consequences of addiction and smoking. That's one side of the issue. I think what really drove them, the Qing court, is not that. It's the money. Because with increasing import of opium, China saw the outflow of silver. And that affected the government because it led to government bankruptcy. Because without silver, local governments could not function. And that's what they used to pay government officials to pay for large government projects. I think what drove the Qing government in the end to war is the outflow of silver. In 1839, a new official, Lin Tzu is appointed to crack down on the trade in Canton, Guangzhou. And he first orders all the drug supplies held by foreigners in Guangzhou to be handed over to him. And until the drug is handed over to him, he holds all the British traders hostage. And from that perfectly legitimate act on his part unfolds a series of moves which lead to the dispatch of British ships and soldiers to fight what we call the First Opium War. This is Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabel Quince. The First Opium War, even though China had a larger army, resulted in the swift defeat of the Chinese forces in 1842. When the first British envoy went to China in 1793, as he left, the Qing put on a great military display. Soldiers guarding the waterways, parading almost all the length of the journey down from, from Beijing. If Britain and China had gone to war in 1793, there is no way the British would have been able to defeat the Qing. By 1841-42, the British have steam power, steamships. The British have a combination of a much better organised army, a much better organised coordination of naval and land forces, but they have steam. They have steamships which operate for the first time in, in a war. They're able to tow their soldiers anywhere, and that is the big difference. When they fight the Qing forces, they're fairly well matched. The Qing fight, and they fight well, but they don't fight well enough, and they can't move as effectively as the British can move. The British argued that the war was not about the right to trade opium, but rather the right to free trade across China. The defeat of the Chinese led to the Treaty of Nanjing, the first of a series of humiliating treaties imposed on the Qing dynasty. When the first British envoy went to China, he went with a set of requests. For example, uh, an enclave that the British could call their own, an island off its coast, for example. He asked for a diplomat, an ambassador to be permanently stationed in Beijing. And he asked for an extension of trade to other ports outside of Guangzhou, to which trade had been restricted since the middle of the 18th century. These were all requests reformulated as demands, which were embedded in a treaty signed in Nanjing, 
1842, which opened five further ports to British trade and residence and ceded the island of Hong Kong in perpetuity to the British as an island enclave. The Qing were also required to pay compensation for the loss of of opium stocks in 1839. So they get what they want to an extent, although the British are never satisfied with what they have achieved. They always want more. They always want more ports to be opened. They always want to be able to trade further. I think a lot of people did not quite realise that it was more than a treaty to stop the war. It was something more consequential because it means that the British could now come in and do business legally. Sure, the Chinese didn't want the treaty, but they thought, oh, yeah, it was just a bunch of British. They wanted to little island do their business. Fine, that's, you know, fine. We didn't like that, but that's okay. But they didn't know that this opened the floodgate. It opened up initially a few cities along the southeast coast from Shanghai to Canton. Slowly, I think, things began to change because it exposes the Chinese people who came to, into contact with these foreigners. Then, on the other hand, because Britain had managed to open the door, the French and the others, they want treaties as well. And as a matter of fact, the French and the Americans all had their separate treaties. So what the treaty did is it opened China for grabs. The biggest problem for the Qing turned out to be not British trade or British residents in Shanghai or Amoy, but the persistent spread of foreign ideas. British missionaries came in on the first ships with British businessmen when trade formally opened. And one of the biggest problems the Qing faced after 1842 was a massive rebellion which emerged from southwest China, from Guangxi province, led by the younger brother of Jesus Christ, as he styled himself, and called Hong Xiuquan, who led and set up what he called the Taiping Kingdom, the Kingdom of Heavenly Peace. These were indigenous Chinese Protestant Christians who went into battle chanting the Ten Commandments, who had their own translation of the Bible, and who rolled up from the southwest, conquered central China, set up a capital in Nanjing, and almost dislodged the Qing dynasty. This rebellion lasted for 14 years. It's probably the bloodiest civil war in recorded human history. Tens of millions of people died as a result of displacement, famine, conflict, and most people overseas have never heard of it. It has a direct link to the arrival of foreign ideas and foreigners on the China coast. The irony is that none of the treaties that followed the First War mentioned opium, and despite remaining illegal, the use of opium in China continued to increase. I would say from 1850s, you could see that opium consumption was destroying the fabrics of society because now almost all the classes top to middle, lower middle classes even, are consuming and some are becoming addicts. And the worst thing, the opium war was already lost 
before it was fought because the soldiers were addicted. Most worse than the Second Opium War, according to my research, is seven out of ten were addicted to opium. So if seven soldiers out of ten were addicted to opium, then it's no surprise that you lost the war. And that was only the situation with the military. And the worst situation is with government officials, the local government officials. Those are the people who dealt with the empire. If they were smoking and if they were addicted, it's the people who will see it. You know, the emperor and the princes, they were in Beijing and few people saw them. So the officials were really responsible. The scholar officials, the Confucian trained, they were responsible for the spread of opium. The Second Opium War unfolds because of the continued frustrations of some British officials and British traders at their failure to what we would now call penetrate the China market. They felt that they were not respected by Qing officials. They felt that the the real market was always a bit further away from them, that they were hemmed in by traders in their ports in Shanghai or Guangzhou who obstructed their ability to actually reach the Chinese market. In late 1856, a particularly bellicose British consul in Guangzhou picks a fight over the seizure of a nominally British ship in Guangzhou by the Chinese authorities. I say nominally because it's a Chinese ship, but it has managed to secure Hong Kong registration. Uh, But that registration has lapsed. It is suspected, probably rightly, of smuggling by the customs authorities in Guangzhou. They seize it. The British consul seizes this opportunity to effectively lead the British state into war. He's a man on the spot who has the power to calm a situation, to come to an agreement. He's he's in the wrong. He's called Harry Parks. But he chooses to inflame the situation and to work with the British naval authorities based in Hong Kong to turn this incident, this besmirching of the British flag and of British prestige, into a conflict which leads to the British bombardment of Guangzhou and then what we now call the Second Opium War, a far bloodier, a far more damaging war for the Qing, which eventually sees British and French forces march on the capital in North China in late 1860. I think the signature humiliation was the looting and the burning down the Summer Palace. And the Chinese have quite deliberately left ruins there wasteland to educate their young people. Well, this is what happens if you don't love that motherland. You use that as patriotic education campaign. So yes, it is a catastrophe. Here are these foreign envoys who march into the city of Beijing in 1860 and sign a new treaty which opens more ports to foreign trade, for example, another massive indemnity and other new advantages for British and French and, of course, American and other traders. After China had been defeated, all the powers wanted to have a share. 
This was、uh, historically called the scramble for concessions. Britain would say, because of Hong Kong, the Pearl River Basin is my sphere of influence. Further to the west, the French said, "Well, we've got Vietnam now, called Vietnam, and therefore the Red River Basin of South China is our sphere of influence." The British say Shanghai is a very important commercial center of ours, so we claim the whole of the Yangtze River Basin to be our sphere of influence. Germany got Shandong Province and tried to extend it along the the Yellow River. Russia claimed Manchuria and what is now Chinese Turkestan. So every every power tried to have a a bit of, of China. The difference between formal partition is. They didn't actually set up their own governments there. The existing Chinese local governments continue to operate, but they say, "This is my territory. Don't you come anywhere near." The Chinese are told the 21st century belongs to them, a time to make China great again, to bring back the power and the glory that was lost. Since the Opium Wars, we went through shame of being invaded by Western countries. For more than a hundred years, we suffered. Now we want our glory back. History can only be narrated and given a verdict by the government. So, the government has a monopoly over history, and of course, this is all part of age of empire, scramble for China, and imperialism that led to the downfall. Of the Qing Dynasty and the rise of the Communist Party, and this is the normal rhetoric and narrative you would get. And I'm not saying they're not important. I think they matter, but I think it's been maybe abused. They always blame the foreigners, and they never really look into the domestic problems. You have massive population explosion. By the 1900s, China had 400 million. The population had doubled, tripled, but not the land. So the regime had a problem feeding the increasing people, and the late Qing was rather scattered because the central power was weak. The Empress Dowager didn't really have control. So a lot of localities was ruled by local strongmen, which Led to what we called the warlord era. So what I'm saying is that the Chinese regime have used this period of humiliation, defeat in the hands of foreigners and Japanese, as some kind of legitimacy. And I think this sense of injury is prompting China to do a lot of things today on the world stage, because on the one hand. It's still angry with the West because the West never apologized for what it did to China. So it's an ammunition for the Chinese government. China's actions today do speak to that legacy, but they're also motivated by its own savvy understanding of geostrategic. Shifts and geopolitical shifts in、uh, in the global economy today. Yes, absolutely. It would be foolish to say that every Chinese leader, administrator, and walks around thinking all the time, "Oh, I must, I must extract revenge for the Battle of the Dagu Forts in in 1860." But at the heart of the way the state articulates itself, 
especially in the way that younger Chinese people respond to events, China's formerly degraded position is constantly a reference point. China can say, no, China will never be weak again. The Qing were weak. The Qing threw away China's sovereignty. We won't. We have strength. We will assert ourselves. So it is absolutely bound up into the way Chinese people see the world. But obviously, there are other factors there as well. But history is important in China. Robert Bickers, Professor of History at the University of Bristol. My other guests, Jun Yong Wen, Professor of Chinese History at the University of Manchester, and Emeritus Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney, John Wong. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. Music